0: This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, February 7th, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. On our show today, a residency for makers at the Scott Family Museum in Bentonville.
1: There's also a component of uh, aligning it to, you know, what we already have at the Amazium, um, you know, bringing in some new ideas so that, you know, there's a learning component to it. We always want the makers to spend some time with our teams so that they can learn some new skills and begin to, you know, look at things a little
0: bit differently than they may have in the past. Sculptors, engineers, people with ideas can apply through the early part of next month. Details ahead. And in just a few minutes, a new book about the fight against a swine farm near the Buffalo River. That report from Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich in just a moment. The Arkansas Department of Health is reporting one of the lower single-day totals of new COVID-19 cases in weeks. The results from yesterday are from a weekend day when much of the state was still thawing out from a winter storm. The report shows 981 new cases and 38 newly confirmed fatal cases. That brings Arkansas's number of deaths from the virus to 9,831 people. Hospitalizations have fallen below 1,500 for the first time in weeks and there are just more than 38,000 active cases today. That's down from last month's pandemic high of more than 101,000 active cases. The Walmart Amp continues to add to its warm-weather roster of performers. This morning, the venue announced country singing superstar Kenny Chesney will be on stage there Thursday, June 30th. Tickets go on sale Friday at 10 a.m. through the usual Walton Art Center outlets. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals will host a job fair Thursday evening at 530 Part-time jobs include ushering, selling tickets, being a member of the grounds crew, camera operating, and more. Applications and interviews will be available in the community room at Arvest Ballpark Thursday evening beginning at 5.30. And make it eight consecutive wins for the Arkansas men's basketball team. The Razorbacks defeated Mississippi State Saturday to extend the streak. To make it nine straight, Arkansas will have to knock off number 1 Auburn Tuesday night in Bud Walton Arena. Tip-off for the game set for 6 p.m. Thank mm-hmm. Monday. This is Ozarks at Large. Thank you for being with us. We begin our show today with the writer of a new book. The book is titled Save the Buffalo River Again. The author is Brian Thompson. The book chronicles a seven-year-long battle to shut down an industrial swine breeding factory farm along a tributary to the Buffalo National River. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich recently spoke with Thompson, and
2: she brings us this report. The Buffalo River was declared our nation's first national river 50 years ago to perpetually protect the remote Ozarks waterway from hydroelectric dams and other intrusive development. But a new threat quietly ominously emerged in 2012 with little notice as Brian Thompson writes in his new book, Save the Buffalo River, again.
3: So uh, the book is divided into eight chapters— And each chapter represents a year, going from 2012 to 2019. So I'm going to read a little bit from the very first chapter, 2012, and that chapter is called The Permit. So here we go. Jason Hansen grew up in rural Mount Judea, pronounced Mount Judy, a remote, unincorporated community 14 miles east of Jasper. Henson is tall, round-faced, with hair combed forward, giving him a slightly boyish appearance. He worked for a while in the city, but he'd always hoped to find a way back, a way to earn his living back home in the hills along Big Creek. He spent some time helping out his cousins, Richard and Philip Campbell, with their small hog operation. It is thought that sometime in 2011 or 2012, Cargill, the corporate integrator for the Campbells, presented them with an opportunity to do something more ambitious. Possibly their small farm was to be phased out. The proposal was for something that would be considerably larger, industrial in its scale, a farrowing operation accommodating 2,500 sows and 4,000 piglets, a major step up. The barns and waste holding ponds would be located 1,500 feet from Big Creek, a major tributary of the Buffalo National River. The Campbells and Henson would initiate the project under the guidance of Cargill, the supplier of the breeding stock and buyer of the Winged shoats, and also of Arkansas Farm Bureau. They would name their new enterprise C&H using the first letters of their last names. They would call it a family farm.
2: Newton County pig farmer Jason Henson in the fall of 2012 had secured a permit to build the confined animal feeding operation, an industrial CAFO from the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality based on an environmental assessment drafted by the U.S. Farm Service Agency to secure a federal loan guarantee. Without no public hearing and scam public notice, the farm service ruled the factory farm would have no significant environmental impact.
3: Well, the waste, they had to uh, muck out the lagoons regularly, and and they would spread them on 17 pastures. And uh, over time, I think they realized that they're going to need more room to spread that waste. Eleven of those initial pastures were along the banks of Big Creek. And so the the big concern uh, with that is runoff when there's big storm events.
2: Soon after the permit was approved, then-Buffalo National River Park Superintendent Kevin Cherie discovered that the Park Service had been inexplicably and falsely listed on the environmental assessment as a cooperating agency along with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In December 2012, Cherie sent out an official letter of complaint to the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality. He followed up with another letter citing 45 flaws in the environmental assessment, which also failed to document that CNH Hog Farms and adjacent sewage lagoons with hog waste were situated on fractured, karst limestone terrain. Millions of gallons of hog waste produced by the farm annually posed an imminent threat to local Well Springs, Big Creek, and the Buffalo National River. In early 2013, the nonprofit Buffalo River Watershed Alliance was founded by Newton County farmer Gordon Watkins. He serves as alliance president to this day. Working with a coalition of conservationists, biologists, wildlife experts, and recreationalists, they set to work to shutter the factory farm. The state of Arkansas, now under growing public scrutiny, funded Andrew Sharpley, a soil and water quality scientist in the Division of Agriculture at the University of arkansas Fayetteville, to form the Big Creek Research Team, drilling monitoring wells on the farm and testing Big Creek
3: Basically, he he called his uh, team uh, the Big Creek Research and Extension Team. They had the extension service working with them whose job is to help farmers. They took measurements and they did monitor Big Creek. And a lot of the data we felt was was showing that Big Creek was showing nutrient buildup
2: referring to excess phosphorus and nitrogen eliminated in swine waste, which can choke rivers and lakes with too much aquatic plant growth. To countervail what many believe to be a biased state-funded study, a self-funded citizens' water quality monitoring team formed, led by Dr. Van Brahana, a noted U of A hydrogeologist. Brahana and volunteers, including former NOAA fisheries biologist Teresa Turk and watershed resident Carol Bidding, conducted independent baseline testing on surrounding private property up and down Big Creek along the Buffalo and conducted karst dye tracing, showing that surface waste quickly moved underground Thompson claimed Sharpley's final report provides little insight as to CNH Hog Farm's environmental impact.
3: We felt that the science was showing uh, eutrophication. Uh, Dr. Sharpley seemed to uh, downplay it.
2: For his self published book, Thompson sourced Sharpley's Extension Team record, Buffalo River Watershed Alliance record numerous state and local news accounts, and conversations with dozens of involved stakeholders, including Gordon Watkins, he chronicles five years of public protest, pitched public hearings, legal action, and ecological ground-truthing. But in the late summer of 2018, it was the Buffalo River itself, below the confluence of Big Creek and downstream, that seemingly offered Closing testimony.
3: It was the worst outbreak of algae that anybody had ever seen on the buffalo. Uh, there were tons of pictures taken. It alarmed the public.
2: The Arkansas Department of Health issued a warning that summer to Buffalo River watershed residents and visitors to not swim in the river or swallow the water. c and hog farmers blamed wild animals and tourists for polluting the river That summer, Henson and the Campbells, now under contract with global pork producer JBS, which bought out Cargill's pork division, were planning to expand swine breeding operations into Franklin County. But by then, the Buffalo River had been named one of America's most endangered by the national organization American Rivers. On June 12th, 2019, the Buffalo River Watershed Alliance and Arkansas Canoe Club were poised to file suit in U.S. District Court against CH Hog Farms when Governor Asa Hutchinson announced it would cease operations. The farmers, he said, would receive a $6.2 million payout, funded in part by the state of Arkansas, the rest from the Nature Conservancy, which placed the farm under a conservation easement
3: and so uh the the farmers uh retained ownership of the barns. part of the deal was that the ponds were to be filled in. We wanted more scientific studies done on on what the leakage might have been, but they they didn't do that. They did talk about how to deal with the waste and and they couldn't wait long because a good rain would cause those ponds to overflow, and the farmers had stopped spreading it uh so they ended up. Uh, pumping it down and hauling it up to Missouri, which is was not our preference, but that was probably the most cost-effective thing for them to do.
2: Sharpley, who led the state-funded Big Creek monitoring team, has since retired. But the citizen water quality monitoring on the Buffalo River watershed continues, Thompson says, with Turk and Bidding continuing to sample along the waterway. Thompson, a retired project leader for Tyson Foods, also learned while writing his book that Cargill, a privately held American Global Food Corporation based in Minnetonka, Minnesota, was courting additional Ozark farmers.
3: I found this out. When I was doing the research, preparing the book, uh, some of my sources really don't want to be named. They made it very clear that in their communications with Cargill that their plan was to add more operations, not only near the Buffalo, but near the King's River.
2: That Cargill agenda in the end failed, but Thompson warns that vigilance is required to protect the Buffalo National River from future threats. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
0: By the way, proceeds from sales of the book will be donated to Ozark Society, Buffalo River Watershed Alliance, and Arkansas Canoe Club.
4: The Walmart Amp in Rogers welcomes rock duo The Black Keys with special guests Band of Horses and The Velveteers Thursday, October 13th. Tickets are now available at Amptickets.com or
0: 443-5600. This is Ozarks at Large. The Museum of Native American History, Mona, will host Mitch Walking Elk for its next Hear Our Voices speaker series. Hear Our Voices is dedicated to highlighting the indigenous storytellers from across the nations. It's a virtual event, and it will take place Saturday morning at 11 on Facebook Live. You do not need a Facebook account to watch. For more details, go to Mona.us. That's M-O-N-A-H.U.S. Dr.
1: Karee Banton, host of the podcast Undisciplined, along with KUAF Public Radio, presents Undisciplined Live in celebration of Black History Month. The first live podcast recording will focus on black business and black entrepreneurship. It will be held at Into View Gallery and Studio in Rogers on Tuesday, February 8th from 5 to 7
0: p.m. For more, visit KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The Scott Family Museum is looking for creative people. The museum's makers in residence collaborate with the Amazium staff to create new ideas and exhibits. The residency includes a stipend of $8,400 and more than $7,700 for materials. Deadline for application for this particular position, March 11th. Last week, we reached Paul Stolt, marketing manager at the Amazium, to find out more about the program. He says there are distinct examples of how past makers in residence have developed ideas in collaboration with the staff. A couple things from Amanda Wilshire, who many
1: in the region might know as the maker of uh, dandelions and butterflies, I believe it's called, in Orchards Park. She also made sassy, uh, who, that uh, is along the greenway in um, Bentonville. And at the Amazium, she made the incredible electric technicolor mockingbird, otherwise known as Maud, and it is a steel mockingbird statue that has some incredible technology woven into it, and the technology was actually uh, created by a local maker, Fayetteville maker named uh, Eugene Sargent. And a lot of people know Eugene from his work, but you know he did the really the technology component of that statue, that installation, that makes it able to talk back to people, sort of like a mockingbird. So it has a component where you speak into it, and it returns back what you say, along with a few other noises that other people have made into this recording system. So it's really cool. And that's one of the best things about the Maker and Resonance program, is that it offers people who may not have the chance to collaborate Um, They may not even know about each other. They may have never seen each other's work. To come together and to just make that crazy idea into a reality.
0: Yeah, so what's it like if if you apply and you're accepted and you come in the first day, do you just come in and start, you know, throwing out ideas?
1: (laughs) Um, I'm not sure it's quite that simple, (laughs) but there's there's certainly a component to that. I think um, part of the application is asking, you know, why people would want to come in and participate in this program. It's different from a traditional residency in that, one, people are not housed on site. Um, They are not tasked necessarily to come in and just sort of do their own thing. Um, We would love them to come in and look at a couple of different exhibits that we have in development and see how they can add their own twist to that, how they can add their own piece of those so it becomes a part of, you know, our permanent collection and part of, you know, something that the public can come in and experience every time they come to the Amazium. So there is a component of just, you know, throwing out those crazy ideas and seeing what comes up, but there's also a component of uh, aligning it to, you know, what we already have at the Amazium, you know, bringing in some new ideas so that you know there's a learning component to it. We always want the makers to spend some time with our teams so that they can you know, learn some new skills and begin to you know look at things a little bit differently than they may have in the past. And we also want the makers to have a component of a public recognition, being able to um, not only be recognized within the public, But also put on workshops or help us support learning opportunities for different community members to come in if they want to learn about the skills and talents and techniques that this maker brings.
0: You mentioned Eugene Sargent, who uh, is is known for his sculpture as well as other uh, work in in other media. What sort of creatives or makers should consider applying?
1: Just about anybody should consider applying. Um, We have two areas of these residencies that we're focusing on this year. One is, obviously, we've been talking about a creative um, expression in something that's tangible, um, whether it's an exhibit component or an interactive um, art piece or, um, you know, something that, that really encapsulates what this maker or artist brings into the museum. Um, another component is to create an interactive experience, to create an educational experience. So it may be somebody who is not um, necessarily seen or sees themselves as a tangible creative, somebody who's going to make a thing or create a, a work of art, but somebody who has a talent for um, engaging uh, the public, engaging kids in a new way to learn Um, I don't know, just something about mirrors or lights or, you know, a different, just somebody who brings in a different look at how to engage an audience, you know, and the audience can be anyone from, you know, newborns to 102 year olds. So we like to say from two to 102. So there's, there's those two things. So really it's pretty limitless on who may want to apply, um, you know, we, they, there are a few things that they will have to be able to do, um, but, you know, I would say anybody who's curious and, and creative and would like to do something that is for the community to engage with should, you know, consider implying um, you, you, just, you just don't know. I mean, we have all kinds of things happening all the time, and um, putting people together who may not have worked together before, I think, is, is one of the exciting parts about this residency
0: program. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the value. You can have a talented, engaged, energetic uh, staff, but the value of bringing someone in who hasn't uh, been part of the staff, what can that bring to uh, an entity like the Amazium?
1: Well, it brings a new, uh, well, often it brings a new energy. Um, it's somebody who has, you know, developed a set of skills and really kind of come to a place of mastery in what they do. Um, I'm going to use, uh, Amanda Wilshire again, as an example, she is an incredible metal worker. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to watch her work. And, you know, we have some pretty good metal workers, uh, on our team, but, you know, when they started working with her, they just saw these new ways to do something that for them was familiar and there's a lot of learning that happens for us when that when that occurs. We can then look at things, oh, how might we do that a little bit differently? Or uh, what did they bring to this that will make it even better for our audience, for our guests? Um, in the educational side, we've had some people come in who have created just incredible programmatic uh areas of study that that weave sort of the STEM and STEAM disciplines into some very interesting and creative, you know, art projects. Um, it's, it's where kids can come in, grown-ups can come in, families come in, and they start to learn about engineering in a whole new way because they're no longer thinking of engineering as, you know, building a bridge or a building, but building a whatchamacallit or a something that you know, you you turn this and this happens. So, uh, it's really it's really limitless on what we learn as a, and what the community can potentially learn from having these makers come in.
0: Finally, I know that the makers uh, in residence have access to the the fabrication shop. I think it's three thousand square feet. I'm just wondering, Paul, if you ever walk by that fabrication shop, what does it sound like? What's going on in there? <laughs> Well,
1: it depends on the day, Kyle. There are sometimes when it's it's um uh when there's some metalwork going on, it's so loud we can hear it out on the exhibit floor and it's usually not a very quiet place with everybody running around and having fun. Um, but there's a lot of times where you might hear this CNC machine is, you know, cutting out a prototype for a new exhibit. Or um there might be, you know, the, the uh, crackle and pop of welding happening as they're building a frame for um you know something like the mockingbird or uh um, when we were building uh rainbow springs that is in lawrence plaza i mean there was just a lot of you know a lot of noise then uh was really happy great noise or there might be a discussion going on about you know how are we really going to make this this work i mean we just did some work for tulsa and the new museum in tulsa at gathering place discovery lab and we built an earthquake table for them. So you'd walk by and you'd hear, you know, kind of that prototyping where you're using wood and other materials. So you'd hear some hammering and, you know, drilling and things like that. And, and um, then you'd start to hear these these rumbling sounds, these rattling sounds, and this sound of, you know, actuators working as they were trying to work on, you know, how do you replicate an earthquake? I mean, how do you make it? Have not just side to side motion, but also up and down motion. So that was a very uh, interesting time in the fabrication shop because there was a lot of there was a lot of really really cool things happening and a lot of melding of different technologies that um, resulted in some really really. Just incredible experiences that are now housed over in Tulsa.
0: Paul Stolt is the marketing manager for the Scott Family Amazium. The deadline to apply for the maker-in-residence position is March 11th. You can find out much more by following links at
4: amazium.org. It's scratching the surface on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Last fall, news from the geosciences world came out that two new species, dating back to the early Cretaceous period, were discovered in Arkansas. Selena Suarez, associate professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas, was the primary author of the findings. She says the first thing you should know, these are not dinosaurs. They're
5: they're not dinosaurs. It's a fish and a skink. This is a similar genera that we've seen in the region, being in like Oklahoma and Texas in rocks of the same age, um, but it is a brand new species to North America and this area. The other uh, skink-like organism, um, it was a brand new genus and species, so it's, it's n- completely new uh, from the, the genera level. Uh, In North America,
4: not many early Cretaceous fossils are located in Arkansas Except for this particular part of the state known as the Holly Creek Formation in Southwest Arkansas Suarez says it all has to do with the paleogeology at the time
5: during that time period We were kind of in a intertidal tidal zone in southern Arkansas, northern Arkansas, for example, probably had dinosaurs and other things running around But over the years, it's been eroded away. And then also just this region along the coast, like the ancient uh, Gulf Coast, it offers a really nice, what we call a depositional environment or a place where sediment settled and built up and was relatively protected from weathering away.
4: So central to North Arkansas fossil representation is light. What about East Arkansas? Selena Suarez says that's a problem area too.
5: The Mississippi River, (laughs) the modern Mississippi River, has covered over or eroded a lot of the similar-aged rock. And so there's not much remnants of these aged rocks in that area anymore, um, because we have mostly sediment from the Mississippi River.
4: Selena Suarez is a professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas. Her paper, A New Vertebrate Fauna from Holly Creek Formation, can be found at Pier J, That's P-E-E-R-J dot com. Scratching the Surface is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. You can find past episodes at our website, KUAF dot com. This
0: is Ozarks at Large, the Community Blood Center of the Ozarks, asking all eligible donors to give this week to help refill blood reserve levels, which they say dropped sharply during the severe winter storm last week. In addition, donor centers in Joplin, Springdale, and Bentonville were closed and couldn't take donations. Successful donors this week will receive a long-sleeved, quarter-zip CBCO pullover as a thank you. That's while supplies last. If you'd like to know more,
4: cbco.org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Little Guys Movers a community-oriented company rooted in creating better lives for customers and employees alike, providing jobs and serving customers for over 28 years. More than just a moving company. LittleGuys.com for information. Just ahead, an archived edition
0: of the Pryor Center Profiles with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We go back into our archives from more than a year ago when Randy and I talked about the musical group The Group that's just ahead. Speaking of music, make sure you go to the KUAF YouTube channel to see the latest lunch hour performance from Mia Jeldum. She was in our lobby. We didn't have an audience for this one because of, you know, the virus, but it was an amazing show and you can see the entire performance of the latest edition of the KUAF lunch hour right now at the KUAF YouTube channel. <laughs> This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. It's my pleasure to welcome Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History back with us. Randy, what what was that music that we just heard?
6: Well, that was from a musical group called The Group, uh, formerly known as the Dan Blocker Singers. Uh, Young people in the 60s, out in Los Angeles who uh, would play clubs and uh, were actually on some variety shows and they met Dan Blocker who, as you know, was Hoss on uh, Bonanza. Bonanza show, yes. And um, they became the Dan Blocker Singers and toured around and um, sort of became disenchanted with Hollywood and the life out there and wanted something new and uh, ended up moving to Arkansas to, to see, they, they heard a lot of good things about Arkansas and uh, wanted to see what it was like here and see what sort of opportunities they could have. Um, they were led by uh, a young man by the name of Dixon Bowles. And um, it was for lack of a better term, a commune. It mm-hmm. was a, a group of, but it was it was also a business commune. At the time, they were singers and entertainers, but uh, he, Dixon Bowles talked to KATV uh, about his, the, the
7: philosophy of this uh, organization that he called the group. Specifically, we're trying to find, or I won't say we're trying to find, I think we have succeeded in finding. At this point, we're trying to make viable a mid-ground uh, between two cultures now, what has come to be called the establishment and uh, what has come to be called the third world movement or the, uh, uh, the hippie movement or whatever other words might be appropriate. In other words, these two polarized extremes. And our, uh, our task, as we have seen it, has been to find the mid-ground, feeling that the extremes of materialism you know, is, is not good, and neither is the extreme of nihilism. And uh, our task has been to find a mid-ground that was managed to salvage the constructive aspects of, the, of, of what, uh, I hate those <laughs> redundant phrases, but the establishment, uh, the, uh, to salvage the best part of that and to salvage the best part of what is up and coming, you know, with the, with the new culture, and uh, avoid the radical extremes of, of both.
0: it was Dixon Bowles who was the leader of the group who started a singing group, but then became much more. And they had, well, we hear more in these archives from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We hear more about what their, I don't know, group philosophy was.
7: Well, I'd have to say
2: that most of the problems that the society outside will have, we'll have here too. And um, interrelationships, sometimes personal conflicts. But the thing that is so good about the group is that nothing passes by. If there is a personal conflict, um, we try to resolve it immediately, either by direct conflict or confrontation, mm-hmm. or through a third person. And it's usually resolved.
6: That, w- that was Dixon Bowles' wife, uh, his ex-wife. And, um, you know, keep in mind, this is 1970. Mm-hmm. So it had sort of, you know, a, a hippie philosophy, it sounded like. But these... These folks were, you know, far from hippies. Right. Um, you know, their drugs were prohibited, and as they called it uh, back then, free love was prohibited in the group. But uh, one of the members talked to Channel 7 about, you know, the, the first impressions that uh, they would receive from people when, when they would come to it. Rural Arkansas.
2: first reaction normally is that um, we're a bunch of hippies, but after people get to know us and and become involved with with us, they find out that that's not only the furthest thing from the truth, but it is really uh, almost comical that they would have assumed that in the first place. Um, when we first moved to Arkansas, the a lot of People came out to see the hippies. A truckload of people came out one Sunday to see the hippies, and they weren't to be found.
0: You mentioned they came to rural Arkansas. Where exactly were they? Well, they, they ended up leasing. They were on the Big
6: Piney for a little while, but they leased the lodge on Mount Magazine and came up and started running the lodge. So they ended up, Uh, evolving from entertainers to entrepreneurs. Hmm. Um, They uh, ran the lodge completely, but um, Dixon Bowles' brother Clayton sort of explains uh, his involvement in
3: the group. I originally joined just to be in show business. Now, since then, of course, my my viewpoint has completely changed, because of course we're no longer in show business. I enjoy entertaining as such, but uh, as far as the show business aspect, that's
7: obviously. no longer the
3: objective or no. at least your goal. No, not at all. Now, Names of the group are, are quite a bit different now than they were at the time for show business. It's, uh, it, it's a much more personal thing. It's not so much uh, uh, out for money, you know, and that kind of thing.
0: So this is the lodge on Mount Magazine. Now, it's not the lodge that exists there now that's run by the state park system. This was This was something else.
8: Right, right.
6: This was just uh, a, a lodge on the mountain. There wasn't a whole lot up there. It wasn't a state park. Um, but they ran this from top to bottom. They uh, they cleaned the rooms. They ran the restaurant. They even had a, uh, a dinner theater there. And so uh, some of the members, you know, might be come out of the kitchen or come from... Sp- serving tables, and they'd get up on the stage and do a show. And uh, Jim Pitcock from KATV went up and spent a few days there uh, interviewing and doing stories. And um, he uh, he had these thoughts uh, about the dinner theater. They had a dinner theater,
9: uh, I think, uh, five or six nights a week. And the people in Logan County, Paris, Boonville, even as far away as Fort Smith, uh, I mean, they filled the place. The nights we were there, uh, there were no empty tables. It was full uh, both nights. And uh, we interviewed several of of the people in the audience. They had driven over from uh, Paris and Paris. I think I remember interviewing some folks uh, from Van Buren and I think a couple of people had come up from uh, Russellville and they, they, they were on the mountain. They were at about magazine for, uh, I think a couple of years and, and it was a hard life because at the time they didn't have a water source, uh, on top of the mountain, and they had a a truck, which they converted into a water tanker, and a couple of members of uh, the organization would drive down to Paris a couple of times a day, and they would bring the water back up, and they had to have enough water to take care of the rooms that they were uh, leasing every night, and also take care of the folks who were living there, members of the group. And then, of course, they also had to have enough water to take care of the restaurant.
0: It's former KATV News Director Jim Pitcock talking about the time he spent covering, watching, reporting on the group when they were in uh, Logan County. How many members do we know? How many folks made the trip into Arkansas? Well,
6: I think um, it. At the beginning, there were probably about 60 to 80. Wow. Um, yeah, there there were quite a few. And uh, they all, of course, had, had assigned jobs, but they varied. And like I say, some would entertain or some would clean rooms or some would cook. And um, they, they would switch off. And um, they all had a great work ethic. Um, as one of the members here says.
7: A lot of people, I think, might view it as an escape when they first come here. They see it's a, it's a situation where you don't have to go to a, a day job that you may not like. You're gonna, always gonna be with friends. You're gonna be with nice people. And it doesn't, that uh, idea doesn't last long. There's more work that goes on here internally as well as externally than, um, than is ever called for. And those people that have the illusion that it's gonna be an escape either leave very quickly, or go through a tremendous change.
0: All right, so the group, as they're called by the time they're in the lodge at Mount Magazine, I mean, obviously they're not at Mount Magazine it, now, what happened?
6: And, and they're actually, the, the group incorporated at this okay. point, they're, they're like a financial commune, and they, they do a lot of work, they, they campaigned for uh, Winter Rockefeller, hmm. uh, they hmm. did work for him, uh, up on Petty Jean, Mm-hmm. And they were they were beginning to get very involved in, in the community in that area. And uh, then tragedy, uh, I guess double tragedy, struck in the same week as Dixon Bowles explains here.
7: It's probably been the most, uh, definitely, it has been the most dramatic year of our seven years. We started the year off in February, February 5th after closing magazine for the season. February the uh, third, I think it was, Mount Magazine Lodge uh, burned down, and uh, in an hour and a half's time, the thing that we had uh, had all of our hopes pinned to at that time was gone, just completely gone, and uh, this was really a blow, you know. And we we uh, recovered from it pretty quickly, had a meeting about it, trying to determine where we would go from here, you know, in light of of that calamity uh, what did it now mean in terms of the economic support of the group and it meant a lot uh... and then february fifth uh... there was eight of our boys who worked at uh... winrock farms were returning from work and were hit by a tractor trailer rig and uh, five of them were killed and three of them were hospitalized and uh... that was two days after the lodge burning down
0: so the lodge is gone The Things have have turned. The members are gone. Yeah. Yes, some things have gone south, and <laughs> I guess now that I think about it, they literally go south.
6: Yes, they go to Greers Ferry, which at the time was an even smaller community called West Side, mm. and um, they really started to make an impact there. Um, but things didn't go very well, and I talked to financial advisor John Barnes who uh, became involved, not involved with them, but actually bought uh, their newspaper when they left Greer's Ferry. But he talks a little bit about what he knew about their their time and not-so-successful time in Greer's Ferry.
10: They came into Greer's Ferry and really started to do things that could help the community, like they started a volunteer ambulance service, uh, they had a very successful dinner theater, and I think they were trying to form a chamber of commerce. And Cleveland County, because of the uh, Grish Lake, were going through a lot of changes, and those people that were native to the county was having a little bit of a difficult time adjusting to all of these newcomers coming in. And the group, though their efforts, you know, were positive and they were trying to do good for the community. Uh, the lo- long-time residents got a little nervous about it and there was an incident and the incident uh, caused the group to decide to relocate in the Little Rock uh, started divesting of their businesses.
0: You know, Randy, I grew up in a small town in Arkansas and um, you know, outsiders are Looked on with, I guess, what I would um, call suspicion, and especially if more than one or two come at the same time, and it just didn't take off in Greers Ferry,
6: right? And you know, I was looking at an article from '73 from the New York Times, and it it was described as a night riding incident. Yeah, it, uh, there were there were gunshots. Uh, 10 gunshot holes in in a building, Uh, 100 100 stones were thrown at their their building. Um, Considerable damage was done. 23 people from the town were arrested Mm. because of it. And and it's really unfortunate because, um, you know, they own seven businesses. They started the first Chamber of Commerce and the first Optimist Club in that town. (laughs) And they just, you know... They they weren't wanted, which which is really
0: sad. And um, you know, well, I just when when you hear you know on the on the surface a story about you know this group comes in and people are suspicious, it's it can sound a little uh, unnerving or scary. But then when you hear. They wanted to start a chamber of commerce in an optimist Club. That sounds a little yeah. less uh, intimidating.
6: And, and some of them were Boy Scout and Girl Scout leaders, and they were members of the Baptist and Methodist churches. And you know, it's just hmm. it was really unfortunate that that it happened that way. And again, Channel Seven KATV talked to Dixon Bowles, and he and he uh, he was very uh, optimistic about it or, or what they were
7: how they dealt with it. As to why it happened, um, there's a tremendous amount of uh, misunderstanding in a community uh, about the nature of the group incorporated. We haven't been able, I don't think, to uh, make it clear to a certain number of people what what it is that we're doing or why. And unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of people among this antagonistic group that seem willing to uh, listen. We held a meeting last Wednesday, and this is something that's been going on for a while. We held a meeting last Wednesday with the Board of Directors of the Chamber of Commerce and several ministers in the area and uh, to try to find some way to build a bridge. You know, it's one thing to discuss a problem, but it requires listeners as well as talkers, and we as yet haven't been successful in doing that. Basically, I think there's a lot of misinformation and a tremendous amount of misunderstanding.
0: So they leave Greer's Ferry, and they go to?
6: Little Rock. Hmm and and they're here to this day um they moved to little rock they they buy some uh some property and homes in the quapaw area of downtown little rock uh continued to grow and then in the early 80s dixon Bowles started developing uh computer uh software and uh The result ended up being, in the early 90s, Aristotle, which I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, yeah. Yes, um, a major internet provider and uh, web designer, and it's still thriving to this day. You know, they've really made an impact on on the state, and it was just this group of singers, the Dan Blocker singers, who... uh, gathered some friends and came to Arkansas for, uh, you know, financial opportunity. And it ended up, you know, they had some hardships, but it, it really paid off. I talked to Jim Fitcock about sort of his impressions uh, of them, you know, the, the whole idea of hippie or or whatever, and th- this is sort of how he, he summed them up. They were all...
9: A in, very intelligent and they are all very clean cut. And Randy, they really had the knack for making money and they still have it today.
0: Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Just put into a search engine, Prior Center, you'll have hours if not days, of entertainment and interesting history ahead of you. These archives digitize... <laughs> yeah, lots of fun. <laughs> the archives are digitized. They're originally from KATV, except for the original interviews that Randy does for these segments. And this is all made possible through the Tyson Family Foundation gift to the Prior Center. Randy, we don't know what we're going to be talking about in a week, but I'm sure it will be interesting.
4: I'll work on it. I'll see you in a week. American singer, songwriter, and actor Josh Groban and his Harmony Tour with Preservation Hall Jazz Band will perform on Thursday, July 21st at Walmart Amp in Rogers. Tickets are now available at amptickets.com or 443-5600. This is Ozarks at Large. Researchers at Arkansas
0: State University are investigating the correlation between financial literacy and health literacy. Associate Professor of Finance Dr. Philip Tu recently talked with Jonathan Reeves from our partner station KASU in Jonesboro about some of the findings. Tu tells us how the idea for the research project came about.
8: We have focused on improving financial literacy and financial wellness of not only students but, but residents of Northeast Arkansas. And, and what we have found through different research and other research that's out there is there is a very strong link between health outcomes and financial outcomes. We have found that you know, those who suffer financially are also more likely to suffer, suffer health-wise. And so one of the areas we're looking into is finding ways to improve people's health literacy. Um, I'm not a, a real doctor. As my wife likes to tell people all the time, I'm a fake doctor. Um, I, I, I don't give medicine or anything like that, so I can't help when it comes to making better, you know, medical decisions. But where we can help is is to help improve our health literacy of our residents, help them become better informed and making smarter healthcare decisions.
3: Dr. Tu, why are those two things linked? Uh, Have you found why it is that those people who may have low financial outcomes may also have health disparities?
8: Well, it's one of those things. We're not sure which one causes which. Um, It's a vicious circle. You know, what we have found is is that, as is not a shocking statement to make, people who struggle financially, tend to have more stress. And people that have more stress tend to suffer health wise. So, you know, we, we have that relationship there. And so, you know, it's the maybe stress is causing it. We also have the the other issue is, is that with healthcare costs in the way they are, you know, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, and you have an unexpected health care cost, that's going to drive you further into financial distress. So th- they both play on each other. Um, but most of it comes down to the stress level and not having a buffer. If you're middle class, and and you, you know, you miss a You miss a day or you have to pay an extra $100 for, you know, prescriptions or a doctor's visit, you're able to cover that. Whereas if you're in poverty, that $100 may not be there. And so what it may turn out to is you don't go to the doctor. You don't go when you should. And because you don't go when you should, things get worse. And as they get worse, we have that built in. And so now instead of going for something that could have been a two-day fix, now it may be a two-week fix. And so we have that struggle that continues.
3: And we've heard the tragic stories where people have said over and over again, I had to make a decision between whether I was going to get groceries or get my medicine.
8: Absolutely. Absolutely. The decision, I mean, you see it. With diabetics, you know, do I choose my insulin, or do my kids eat this week? Um, you know that that that's something that happens, and, and it happens quite a bit. There are you know there are groups out there that are that are working with it. One of the examples I love to use when I talk to my classes is, uh, and I can't think of the name of the hospital in Boston, but it's their huge basically charity hospital. If you're sick and and don't have insurance, you go to that hospital. And what that hospital did was they actually have now built and created um, housing. They have built affordable housing where they're moving people that were homeless into these houses, into these apartments where they have nurses there and they have telehealth. And what they found was that if they have a nurse who can treat you At an early onset, it costs them less than you having to go into an emergency room and taking up a hospital space for two weeks. They found that it's actually cheaper long run to build these large affordable housing units than it actually was to treat there in the hospital. So we see that there are groups working on it, but it is. I mean, that's, that's in Boston. We're trying to work on it here in northeast Arkansas.
0: Associate Professor of Finance at Arkansas State University, Dr. Philip Tu, discussed research on the link between financial outcomes and health outcomes with Jonathan Reeves from our partner station, KASU, in Jonesboro. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Charleston. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF. Today's show produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich and Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Our thanks to Jonathan Reeves with KASU for his help today. Additional show production today from Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We're back with you tomorrow at noon and seven for a brand new Tuesday edition of our program. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellum. Stay warm. We'll talk again very soon.